Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome to Unobscured, a production of iHeartRadio and Aaron Menke. Our final guest for Unobscured Season 4 is Helen Rappaport. When we wanted to understand the inner workings and daily life of the Romanov household, there was no question who that person should be. Helen Rappaport is a fellow of the Royal Historical Society, and her many books are the best there is when it comes to Nicholas, Alexandra, and their children. And of course, Dr. Rappaport is also a brilliant writer. As others have already said, she is a rare combination of talents, deep and sensitive insights expressed in a clear and fresh style. For many years, she has presented and consulted for TV and audio projects and translated Russian works for the theater. Her signature is to express both the fact and the feeling of the past. And we're so glad she joined us to do that once again here on Unobscured. Writer Carl Nellis talked with Dr. Rappaport about the Romanov family, and it's a privilege to offer their conversation in full. So we end this season of Unobscured where we began, with Nicholas, Alexandra, their dynasty, and their downfall. This is the Unobscured interview series for Season 4. I'm Aaron Mankey. For Unobscured podcast, I'm Carl Nellis. And today we have the privilege of talking with Dr. Helen Rappaport, a distinguished historian uh, who's written a small library of excellent books, including a few on the Romanovs and and their period, their time, their lives in Russia. Uh, Dr. Rappaport is a fellow of the Royal Historical Society, and she's still writing. Uh, She has uh, a, a new book coming out called After the Romanovs, Russian Exiles in Paris that will be out soon from St. Martin's Press. Uh, I'm excited to read that as well as the books that I've already read uh, from her, Dr. Rappaport. Thank you so much. It's an honor to have you on Unobscured. Thank you for, for asking me. So I'm delighted to talk with you because of how valuable your work has been in our process of, of researching and understanding the lives of Nicholas and Alexandra, their children, their time. Um, you've written so many landmark books on Russian history for, for English uh, readers. What, what drew you to The Last Romanovs in particular? Well, it's, it's interesting how I got into The Romanovs because it was actually by accident. When I first started um, being interested in and wanting to write history, it had never crossed my mind to do the Romanos, I guess, because I thought it was all a bit saccharine and chocolate boxy, you know, all those romantic pictures of girls in frocks and big hats and all the bling and ceremony didn't appeal to me. 
Um, it was an agent I was with at the time when we were sitting discussing um, what book I was going to do next during a horrible hiatus between books. And we were kind of stumped a bit. And he said, well, why don't you do the Romanos? And I said, oh, no, 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 it doesn't appeal to me at all. I mean, it's too chintzy for me. And he said, well, go away and think about it. And actually, he gave me a very good um, hook for, for exploring the Romanos, to which, for which I'm eternally grateful, because I said to him, I don't want to do a whole great big comprehensive biography of the Romanos or a huge study of the reign. I said, I'm much more interested in the detail and some particular point in the story. And so he said, well, why don't you look at the end of their lives? And when I went away and looked and honed in and focused on the very end of their lives, i.e. pretty much from when they were imprisoned at the Alexander Palace, and then I, I honed it in even closer to the last two weeks of their lives in a Ekaterinburg in the Apatyev house, I suddenly realized there was a really interesting and exciting scenario there that had never been explored, which was looking at the family really close up. How were they? What was going through their minds? How did they deal with captivity? What were the tensions being trapped in a house in Western Siberia, knowing that probably the writing was on the wall? So my interest in them began with that very brief period of the very, very end of their lives, the last two weeks. And it was while I was writing that book that I first began to develop a sense of those poor, not poor, I shouldn't call them poor, those lovely four girls locked away in that house and, the, and the, their lives cut short uh, so cruelly. And I began to feel that they had never really enjoyed an identity in books about the Romanos. It had always, till then, been about the mother and the father and the haemophiliac brother. So at that point, when I finished Ekaterinburg, I felt there was more to look at. And that took me into the next book, which was exploring, almost really exploring the domestic life of the Romanos. What was it like behind the scenes for them as a family? And then the third book really led on from that because the one niggling thing I still felt I had not explored at the end of two books on the Romanos was why couldn't they be saved? Why could no one get them out of Russia? And I felt too that that had been rather sort of skimmed over in existing books, also partly because of lack of documentary evidence being made available by the Russians at the time. So that took me to my third book, which was exploring why they couldn't get them out. So by accident, I've kind of written three books about them. Hmm. Well, and what you do get into exploring their domestic world, it is so moving beyond the the political presence of the czar, you know, the empress uh, and, and what they were doing. The way that you explore uh, the daily lives, the routines, the the close relationships within the family, challenges with health, things that I'd never read before, I, I really appreciated the way that you render all of that in, in your books. Um, well, thank you. So let's go, let's start with, with Nicholas and Alexandra and then come forward and I really hope we'll spend a lot of time with with the girls and 
and the household once once the children are all there. But um, starting with Nicholas and Alexandra, when you started looking at them, were there were there aspects of them as people, their personalities that that caught your interest or imagination? Well, I think what was most interesting about them initially was the fact that unlike virtually every European royal couple, they actually were allowed to marry for love, which was a very rare thing when you look at Queen Victoria busily arranging the dynastic unions of all her children and her grandchildren and them all intermarrying and marrying cousins and second cousins. The the, the almost unique thing about Nicholas and Alexandra was um, it was a long, a protracted love that began when she was only about 12 years old, when Nicholas first saw her, and he kind of carried the torch for her until she was, um, until they met again in Coburg in 1894. So it, it wasn't an enduring affection between them. It wasn't something they were pushed into as a dynastic union, nor was it a sort of spur of the moment love affair. It was something that had been growing for a long time. And of course, she initially was deeply resistant to agreeing to marry him, even though she loved Nicholas. It was a very genuine love between them because of her Lutheran faith. And that was a real obstacle at first. So that, that had to be overcome. Uh, family prejudice also had to be overcome in the sense that Queen Victoria was pretty adamant initially at the thought of her precious granddaughter, um, Alexandra, Aleki as they called her, um, marrying into the Russian throne. Queen Victoria was absolutely against the idea of um, Aleki marrying Nikki young Nicholas the Tsarevich of Russia, because she felt Russia was very unstable, very unsafe. I mean, even then, by the 1880s and 90s, there was this history of political assassination. And, um, you know, Nicholas's uh, own grandfather had been murdered by revolutionaries. So they had to overcome quite a lot of obstacles and um, were an utterly devoted couple. And so that it did interest me and intrigue me. Because, of course, Alexandra, uh, for those who are new to the topic and, and these um, these people, of course, Alexandra was not Russian. Uh, and you no. mentioned that she was Lutheran. Can you say a little bit more about why her being Lutheran made it a difficult choice to marry Nicholas? The problem for Alexandra as a German Lutheran uh, from Hesse by Rhine was that to marry the Tsarevich of Russia, the ruler of Russia, there was one absolute rule that had to be um, observed, and it was a requirement for marriage, and that was she would have to convert to Russian orthodoxy. There is no way she could have retained her Lutheran, German Lutheran faith and be a future Tsaritsa of Russia. So this was a hugely challenging period for her because she loved Nikki, but she did not want to abandon her Lutheran faith. Alexandra had all been, always been pretty religious and pious and uh, very observant. So it was a really, really difficult period because eventually it was her sister Ella who helped persuade her because Ella too 
like Alex, Al Alexandra married a Russian. She married Grand Duke Sergei, but without all the agonizing about adopting the Russian Orthodox faith, Ella embraced it pretty much immediately and then persuaded Alexandra to also do likewise. So she couldn't have married the Tsarevich unless she had adopted Russian Orthodoxy. Mm. Mm. What's, what's and of course, then the, the, the interesting thing that happens is that she becomes more Orthodox than the Orthodox. You know, sometimes people who adopt an, or embrace a new religion become even more almost fanatical about their new religion as converts than if they'd been born into it. So she she ended her life being profoundly Russian Orthodox. That's beautiful. That's perfect. Um, on, on Nicholas's side, how did he see... So th that's a great kind of point of contrast because, of course, he was born not just into Russian Orthodoxy, but into the Romanov dynasty. Yeah. So if Alex is at first hesitant and then over the course of her time becomes deeply devoted to Russian Orthodoxy and, of course, her family. Um, how did Nicholas approach this legacy that he inherits, his role as czar, his place, place in the Russian church, in the Romanov family? What, what did it look like from Nicholas's perspective? Well, of course, Nicholas originally had, a, had an older brother who should have been czar, but who died young. Uh, and then uh, to make matters worse, um, he was thrust into onto the throne unexpectedly when his father fell sick with kidney disease, when Alexander III fell ill with kidney disease and died in his 40s. Now, the, the problem from, for Nicholas right from day one was that he should have probably had another 20 years to prepare for becoming czar. So he hadn't learned the tools of the trade. He hadn't learned statecraft. statecraft. He was timid and frightened and terrified of the enormous responsibility of becoming czar in his 20s, uh, when, of course, he would have expected to become czar maybe in his 40s. So, But he took it very, very seriously and in a very kind of dogmatic and rather narrow um, way in that he simply... Uh, uh, decided or uh, declared rather from the moment he became czar that he would preserve the autocracy handed to him by his father Alexander III exactly as passed down to him and he was always deeply stubborn about not changing anything in the way in which Tsardom operated as handed down to him so he was never an innovative or forward-thinking czar he stuck very much to the old way of doing things that his father had, had, had done before. Mm. And you mentioned that Alexandra coming in was a deeply pious Christian as a Lutheran, and then she joins this family in this new faith. Can you say a few words about how her faith related to this sense of what it meant to be a czar? You know, was she devoted to autocracy as a matter of faith? Absolutely. I mean, in Russia, autocracy and orthodoxy went absolutely hand in hand. It, they, they were the cornerstone. I mean, to, to be czar, you had to be orthodox. 
And they had this absolutely implacable belief that in the divine right of the Tsar, pretty much like the divine right of kings even in Britain back in the, you know, 17th century. So, you know, it was a God-given role that Nicholas had this duty to perform and he had to perform it in the absolute traditional manner in which it had been handed down to him. And Alexandra very much believed in this idea that they were the little mother and little father of the nation, the Matushka and Batushka, as they were called by the peasantry, and that the peasantry looked up to them uh, unquestionably, with unquestionable loyalty and devotion. And she believed that stubbornly right to the very end that the people really loved them. And of course, um, by the time of the revolution, many of the people didn't love them at all anymore. And the, the whole kind of uh, gloss of uh, the protective father czar had completely gone and been tarnished. But they they both believed in this God-given right to rule and to pro pro protect the throne and pass it down to their beloved son. Hmm. So that says a little bit about how they saw their relationship to the people. In, in your writing, there's a really interesting turn when Alexandra first enters Russia and Russian society where she also has to navigate relationships with the Russian court. Mm. And, you know, maybe she has this adamant devotion to autocracy and the sense that it's a divine legacy over the people. But it seems she makes a mistake, a misstep maybe, with Grand Duchess Vladimir. Well, I wouldn't say it was a misstep. I think part of the problem was Grand Duchess Vladimir, along with the Dowager Empress Maria Fyodorovna, had been the doyens of high society in Russia in St. Petersburg. And Vladimir in particular was stunningly wealthy, had the most magnificent jewels, probably as magnificent as the Tsaritsa herself. And she was kind of queen bee of Russian society. Now along comes a new young Tsaritsa, um, and Vladimir expects her to take her place in society and be up there, hobnobbing with the aristocracy and making appearances in Petersburg and, you know, going to all the right balls and receptions and this, that and the other. And from day one, Alexandra stubbornly resisted all that. Um, she really, really did not want to be part of St. Petersburg society. She was extremely reserved, almost hostile to what she perceived as very hedonistic, aristocratic, indulgent society in the big city, in the capital city. She didn't want to um, have a family and bring up a family in that environment. So Vladimir was very disapproving of Alexandra not taking her proper place in society. And they did rub each other up the wrong way, particularly as uh, Grand Duchess Vladimir also, and her husband, who was the most senior Russian Grand Duke, had always had um, aspirations to the throne coming down to them and their, their children if an heir was never produced. So there was a certain animosity and antagonism between them. Um, 
and it got worse, but it, it didn't get worse really until later on in the rain. Could you say a few more words about the urgency felt by Nicholas and Alexandra to produce a male heir? Oh, it was enormous. The pressure on them was, particularly on Alexandra, I mean, her, her, her role, really, I mean, okay, but she had a, this, she had the good fortune to marry for love. Um, but her role, essentially, once she was Tsaritsa, was to produce a male heir, because in Russia, it, the, the throne was passed down by male children only. This law had been brought in by uh, Tsar Paul I because he'd hated his mother, Catherine the Great, so much, he wanted to ban women from ever inheriting the Russian throne. So he brought in the law that it had to go through the male line until all male lines in the Romanov family being exhausted before it could pass to a woman. So the pressure on Alexandra from day one, uh, first of all, was to produce children, but particularly to produce a boy. And I, I think it's almost impossible to imagine the enormous emotional and psychological pressure on her over a period of 10 years to produce a boy and to keep having girls. Uh, and not only that, difficult pregnancies, big babies. I mean, she must have suffered physical agonies producing those four girls in, in fairly quick succession. And then finally, in 1904, this longed-for boy and of course, all the church bells rang and gun salutes were fired all over Russia and everyone was celebrating the birth of Tsarevich. And then this horrendous tragedy befalls them that this longed for beautiful child, and he was a very beautiful baby, turns out to be a hemophiliac. Mm. Yeah. Um, to stay with Alexandra, for a moment, you movingly describe her many ailments over the course of her life. Um, her molar pregnancy, sciatica, heart trouble, headaches, facial mm -hmm. neuralgia, uh, and eventually you note that she kind of embraces invalid life as a burden from God. Yeah. Um, can you describe kind of when she began to experience these health challenges, were they related to the pressure and stresses of the Russian court? Um, and then how did they manifest kind of in her day-to-day -day life? Well, to begin with, I think Alexandra clearly was plagued with sciatica in, from her teens. Because one thing that is very interesting when, when I looked into um, the detail of her courtship with Nicholas was that and, and between her mother dying in 1878, she'd spent a lot of time back and forth to England, spent a lot of time with Queen Victoria. When it was announced she was going to marry Nikki in April 1894 after they got engaged in Coburg at a family wedding, the one of the first things Queen Victoria arranged when Alexandra went back to England with her to prepare, you know, for her a future wedding, was to get her to Harrogate in Yorkshire for treatment for this crippling sciatic pain she suffered from. So she was sent to Harrogate for a water cure. And, and that was the first probably of many later on in her life after she'd had the children. They, she went uh, more than once, I think, to Bad Neuheim, 
in, in Germany for again for water cures. So she had always had the sciatica. And I cannot imagine how painful her pregnancies must have been, suffering from sciatic pain and carrying, you know, 10, 11 pound babies to term. Uh, she must have been dreadfully um, consumed by pain at times. And she was often had, had to be lying down. But on top of that, I think a lot of her problems may we can't be sure because there are never any very good medical reports about her. And if there were, they were never, you know, they were never shared. The documents weren't shared, although I did find one um, that I managed to access. I think, uh, you know, it's difficult to judge at what point a lot of her problems became psychosomatic as a way of avoiding having to go into society because Time and again, I, you know, I saw letters and comments or diaries from the girls or members of court. Oh, you know, they, the family were due to go to the theatre or to a, or something. And Alexandra would either drop out or go home early because she wasn't feeling well. And she was all the, always the party pooper, you know, the one who, you know, was indisposed. And so time and again, you see Nicholas taking his girls to the ballet or to the opera without their mother. And Alexandra just wasn't a presence socially at all. Alexandra, time and time again, the girls would say in little notes, so in their diaries, oh, mother couldn't come down to lunch because she had a headache and she wasn't feeling very well. They lived with a sick mother to the point where I think their young lives were almost blighted by it. Those girls were her carers. As simple as that. And I think as time went on, you have to wonder the extent to which Alexandra exploited her indisposition. And this thing she kept claiming about having, you know, um, uh, her heart beating too fast. And then she genuinely had terrible ear infections and migraines. And, oh, gosh, there wasn't almost any complaint she didn't at some time suffer from. So... That kind of coloured family life, I think, more than perhaps we realise. Mm. So you've mentioned diaries and medical reports. And, of course, one of the other forms of records that interested readers probably know about are the numerous letters that Nicholas and Alexandra wrote to each other because, uh, because they wrote in English, right? Well... There is a big gap in the letters. We have to be careful saying that. The real correspondence between Nicholas and Alexandra that survives is the war years correspondence, and only by a fluke because Nicholas didn't get round to destroying all the letters Alexandra wrote to him. So the wartime correspondence is predominantly her long haranguing letters to Nicholas telling him to do this, that and the other and complaining about the girls being hormonal and argumentative and, um, you know, telling him to sack this minister and hire that minister. The war year letters are very revealing of her controlling influence over him. But there, there isn't much prior to that because once the revolution broke and Alexandra and the children were under placed under house arrest at, at Sarskoyosyalo at the Alexander Palace. Nicholas was away at the front at army headquarters. Once they were locked away there, Alexandra started burning 
all her journals, her letters. The girls burnt an awful lot of stuff as well. Tragically, she burnt all the letters she'd had from Queen Victoria. There was, I mean, everything went up in smoke except her diaries for the last year or so of her life. So we've lost a huge amount. But the warrior uh, war letters between predominantly her letters, Nicholas, as I said, um, are fascinating in, in, in what they reveal. Mm. So let's go back to early in their marriage, because one of these figures that might seem strange uh, and, and might not have entered uh, the story for someone who's briefly read about them is uh, the figure of Monsieur Philippe. Yes, well, he was kind of precursor to Rasputin. What happened with Alexandra being so, so desperate, and as a woman and a mother myself, I can understand that sense of desperation, the disappointment of a fourth daughter when she knows the pressures and expectations that she's got to pro produce a son and heir. Uh, what did she do? She started going to alternative practitioners to an assortment of seers, faith healers, quacks, gurus, all kinds of people were kind of suggested to her and pushed in her direction because she, more than Nicholas, was clutching at straws, desperate, desperate to find help or a way of ensuring she had a male heir. And at one point she was introduced to Monsieur Philippe, Maître Philippe, by fellow uh, relatives um, within the Romanov family who'd also been courting him as an alternative faith healer come practitioner. They'd consulted him about their son who'd been ill. Now, Monsieur Philippe was a sort of French uh, society therapist come faith healer come guru, not really a trained doctor at all, but he kind of blagged his way to a position of social interest in, in France. He pra practiced in Lyon and developed quite a following there. And word um, filtered through to Russia that, you know, he was offering advice on how to conceive a male child to women who were desperate to do that. And, of course, he was steered in the direction of Nicholas and Alexandra. And for a brief while, he offered advice. Most of it, I think, was a sort of mixture of cod medicine and quackery. Uh, the jury's out a bit on Maître Philippe in that more recently, some people, certainly in France and in French sources, seem to have begun, to, or maybe they have always done so, begun taking him a bit more seriously uh, than others. Uh, generally, sources from Russia and in Eng English tend to dismiss him as being an outright quack. I'm not convinced that he was. He might he might have had a few useful things to suggest. Um, and of course, he he predicted prophetically that you know she would have a boy child eventually, and that there would be another one like him, another friend who would come along and help him. Uh, help Alexandra. So he was only around for a couple of years and sort of effectively was sent packing with lots of extravagant gifts, including a, a huge motor car. <laughs> do we know do we know what Nicholas thought of him? Well the thing with Nicholas that's interesting. I mean Nicholas 
was always kind of a step or two behind in the disc, you know, took a step or two back from all this because he basically pandered to Alexandra because she was pretty neurotic totally bound up and obsessed with having a male child as one could imagine and once she set her mind that a certain practitioner or guru was going to help her she would throw hissy fits essentially if, if she didn't get her way and didn't get to see this person so he was tended to be more tolerant of all these faith healers and people that Alexandra wanted to consult. So I think he perhaps took Maître Philippe with a pinch of salt, as did most people. Um, he once said of Rasputin later that he would rather have 10 Rasputins than one of Alexandra's hysterical fits. He lived with a very neurotic, sick wife. I think he had more than one cross to bear in his life, really. Mm. And then, of course, the, the girls, they're living, as you said, with this sick mother. Mm. And you write that they inhabited uh, an intimate, highly protected domestic world created by their mama and papa. Yeah. Spend a few minutes describing their world, maybe its, its routines, what were its horizons, how narrow, how confined was it? Well, I've already said that Alexandra was very disapproving of St. Petersburg society. So the four girls only had occasional trips into St. Petersburg to the opera or the ballet or, or some event, the occasional, very occasional ball. Nine times out of ten, it was Nicholas who took them, or if Alexandra went, she left early. And they were so starved of company of their own age. And you can see it when you look at all the photographs of the girls in their teens as they're growing up. There are endless photographs of them surrounded by the officers of the entourage, the, the older women in the entourage, all the men of the regiments of which they had a, an honorary command. And you see these loads and loads of photographs of these pretty young girls surrounded by older men in military uniform. And I, I kept asking myself, where are the younger people of their own age? They were only really ever allowed to associate with a few select officers um, from the entourage, mainly from the SARS escort, occasional visits from uh, male and female relatives, not that often. I mean, the, the children of their own level that they saw probably most often would be their cousins by Nicholas's sister, Xenia, and her husband, Grand Duke Alexander. So, but generally, they had to learn very quickly to be sufficient unto each other, i.e. to live, uh, to inhabit their own world, the four of them, and be self-sustaining and self-supporting. And because of that, they were indeed very close. But there was another big, big reason why they led such sheltered lives, quite apart from Alexandra's disapproval of the world outside, which she thought would corrupt them. And that was, of course, Alexei. Because once Alexei was born in 1904, the fact of his haemophilia had to be kept an absolute state secret. They didn't even tell Nicholas's mother or sisters at first. Um, and, and, and also, as soon as he was born, they pretty much withdrew from ever spending time at the Winter Palace in St. Petersburg. They lived their quiet, 
secluded family life at the Alexander Palace, 15 miles out of St. Petersburg, and um, pretty much drew down the shutters, mainly because they had to protect Alexei from scrutiny. People, they didn't want people to see that he was often sick or, you know, limping because he banged a limb or something. And they had to protect him from accidents, or from running around, falling over, hurting himself. So he, they, they kind of had to cocoon that little boy. And they all rallied around and pretty much closed ranks. That's why. Uh, and also, I guess there was a third reason why the family lived fairly secluded lives. And this was... As time went on, um, the revolutionary movement was growing. Attacks on the Romanov family, on imperial Russian officials, on prime ministers and ministers and governors, you name it. There are assassinations going on left, right and centre, including Alexandra's brother-in-law, Grand Duke Sergei, who was blown to bits in 1905. That was her sister Ella's husband. So pretty much after that, they again retreated even more because quite simply, the threat of attack, assassination, kidnap on the whole family became really quite serious. So there were lots of reasons for them to live a quite secluded life. Would you say just a little bit more about why they felt so strongly they needed to keep Alexis hemophilia a secret? Because how could you have the young Tsarevich who would it, was going to inherit the throne of enormous Russian empire of God knows how many millions of people. I can't remember how big it was at that, uh, that time, but um, they couldn't let it be seen that effectively the boy had a life-threatening threatening condition that would have could and should have killed him by probably the, the mid-teens. That couldn't be known. They didn't want the Russian people to know that Saryevich was sickly. He had to be perceived as this godlike, beautiful child who was going to save Russia, the hope of Russia he was referred to. So... Um, that's why they kept the whole thing secret. And it wasn't until later on when he had a very serious um, flare-up of his haemophilia um, that it finally got out, mainly via the British and American press, in, in fact. Hmm. And across your books on the Romanovs, you note that the daughters were often lumped together as a group in, in the press, um, uh, you know, the the Atma, the O-T-M-A, just kind of crushes them all into to a mass. Uh, well, Alexei was given special attention, but that was also true within the family as well as in the press. Can yeah, you... it's in, yeah, it's interesting. Alexandra herself, you know, you've seen endless pictures. First of all, she often, they, the girls often all dressed alike. But it, right from quite an early age, she split them into two groups, the big pair, Olga and Tatiana, and the little pair, Maria and Anastasia, and they, again, within those two groups tend to dress alike. And um, she often referred to the girls collectively, or as the big pair and the little pair, not by name. It was as though the girls were just the the adjunct to their much more important brother. And in, in terms of the Russian people, you know, they were the pretty set dressing. They looked lovely. They turned up at all state occasions looking exquisite. 
but they were just the set dressing. And, and, and for this reason, you get these sense that they had no personalities. And that's really what was the primary impetus for me in writing uh, the Romanov sisters was I wanted to show they were actually four very different personalities, very interesting girls in their own right, and not just completely bland and characterless and, and anonymous. And they'd been sort of homogenized till then. Maybe uh, by way of, of teasing out a little bit their differences and that kind of thing, could you say more about how personally pious was the whole family and what did devotion look like for the different daughters relative to well, maybe mother's practices, but it, they're their own people. So they were a very quietly religious family. I think what I admire about them is they, they you know, they, perhaps Alexandra would lecture some of her friends and ladies in waiting in her letters and things about religious faith and belief, but the, the girls were quietly pious and religious and observant, very, very devoted. All of them were. The religion actually was what held that family together. And I have always felt, and I, I think I say it in my books, in one of my books, that uh, it reminded me of a saying that was coined during the Second World War, I think, about Roman Catholics uh, families, which was the family that prays together, stays together, and religion and their faith, I have no doubt it was their religious faith that held them together through all the crises over Alex A, there, you know, the times when he had terrible bleeding episodes and nearly died, and undoubtedly, without their religious faith, I don't think they want, would have got through their captivity um, as courageously as they did, if they hadn't had an absolute power of faith uh, and, 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 and acceptance towards the end, you get a very strong sense of the family in the house of Ekaterinburg of their acceptance of what may or may not happen. I think Alexandra certainly was reconciled, became much more religious in the last few weeks of her life. Uh, and the girls really... Were, were deeply observant, just like their parents. How would you describe the way that Alexei figured into the budding relationship between the Romanovs and Rasputin when he comes on the scene? Uh, it's, it's difficult with Alexei. I found evidence that Alexei kind of laughed at Rasputin a bit behind his back and found him a bit odd and weird. Uh, but then Anastasia did too, and they sometimes giggled because he was a bit strange with that deep, sonorous voice and those huge, mesmerizing blue eyes. So, um, But I think towards the end, Alexei could recognize that Rasputin was their friend. You see, they referred to him, all of the children, and, and the parents as well, referred to him as their friend. And this is where people get Rasputin wrong. They think it's all about this miraculous faith healing, which has been wildly misunderstood, overrated and misrepresented. What really mattered about Rasputin to the family was that he was one of the very, very few people they trusted. Because like I've said, they lived very isolated lives at a time where the revolutionary movement wanted them all dead and removed from power. But Rasputin, Rasputin was kind of like a wise guru to them. 
the primary function he performed initially for Nicholas and Alexandra. Sorry, my dog's just come. Yeah, I can see. <laughs> She's puffing and puffing in the background. The primary function Rasputin performed initially when Nicholas and Alexandra first met him was as a wise counsellor. They sat and talked to him for hours and hours about matters of faith, about the concerns about Russia, the Russian people, and, and religious matters. He would spend time telling the children stories from the Old Testament. They loved him. They really loved him as a, as a, as a wise and fascinating personality. Um, sorry, my dog's being noisy. Shush! Shush. <laughs> she just come in from her walk. Yes. Um, so the thing with Rasputin was initially he was a wise guru to the family uh, and a wise counsellor. And that really was a more important function almost than what he did for Alexei because people have this idea that Rasputin was in and out the back door and up the stairs and into the Alexander Palace every five minutes, into, you know, ingratiating himself and muttering prayers over Alexei. And that's not the case. He only came when he was invited. He didn't make that many visits to the Romanovs at the Alexander Palace, and he often went long periods not seeing the family or communicated by telephone with them or by letter or telegram. Um, but what he did do and his really crucial function, as far as Alexei was concerned, when he was suffering episodes of bleeding and swelling of the joints, was he had this incredible auto-suggestive power an ability to calm. And one of the most important things when a child or a patient or the mother of the child is stressed and anxious, as Alexandra was when uh, Alexei had these terrible um, attacks of bleeding, was to calm, calm her. And through calming her, that was transmitted to the child and it calmed Alexei. And I think this is one of the key points in understanding how what he did worked. I can't explain it. He had some kind of also suggestive powers. The best equivalent I can give, and, and I came to it a while back, it's like a horse whisperer, only I call him a people whisperer. What Rasputin could do was calm and reassure um, a stressed person, a sick person. And in fact, it's very interesting because peasants in Russia, like Russia, uh, like Rasputin, who had a peasant background in Siberia, had a technique with their animals. If the animals hurt themselves and were bleeding or were anxious or stressed, they, would, they had a talking cure, like a horse whisperer, with animals. And it was called... Zagavarivat Krof, to talk to the blood, to calm the blood, to stop the bleeding. So this was a technique not unique to Rasputin, but it was something that he had learned by instinct. His father had been a horse trader and he'd learned it in Siberia as a young, young man. So I think he had that kind of autosuggestive gift. But he also, I think the most important piece of advice he gave the Romanovs 
was that Russ, the, the, um, when Alexei was in pain, the last thing they should administer to him was aspirin, which had come in, into use as a painkiller. Because asp aspirin, of course, thins the blood. And the last thing you want to give to a hemophiliac is blood thinners. So, and he also, the other advice he always gave them was don't let the doctors fuss around him and interfere with him too much. And I think this sort of standing back and hands off advice seemed to, ha seemed to work. It seemed to work. Mm. Um, at what at one point in your book on the Romanov sisters, you describe Rasputin as an opportunist. Would you say a little more about what you mean there? Well, I I, I don't mean that really about the Romanovs. I mean that in that when he first arrived in Petersburg and people discovered this wise guru, he became very fashionable, and all these society ladies ladies flock around him, and there are photographs of him sitting surrounded by admiring women, and they brought him gifts, and they made gave him beautiful clothes, and they they fed him and flattered him, and I think in that sense he was an opportunist. You know, if somebody wanted to give him money or take him out for a good dinner, he was more than happy to oblige. Um, in terms of the Romanovs, he actually complained at one point that he only got to go to the palace and see them when they ordained that he should go, which confirms really what I said earlier about him not having the freedom to walk in and out by the back door. So he did, he did exploit the fascination there was for him initially in St. Petersburg and, and was wined and dined and, and, and you know, very well um, looked after and entertained and lived well on it for a while. You mentioned that uh, Alexei and Anastasia, maybe they giggled at Rasputin. What did uh, Olga or Tatiana, Maria, what did the other daughters think of him? Well, they took him very seriously. Uh, uh, Olga in particular, talk, took him very seriously and even wrote him a note asking his advice when she fell in love and, and wanted to know what to do. Um, so the girls took him more, the older two probably, took him more seriously than the younger two. But Anastasia would make fun of everyone and laugh behind people's backs. That was just her kind of personality. But they certainly believed in him as a friend and couldn't bear all the horrible things that were said about him. And of course, they were distraught like their mother when he was murdered. Mm. Mm. How, how damaging to Alexandra were the salacious rumors about her relationship with him that eventually would reach the press and the court and the public? Well, they were appalling and they were absolutely crucially damaging because not only within Russia was she... Parried, parodied and demonized and featured in ugly sexual cartoons with Rasputin, some of them quite pornographic, in fact. These were in circulation in Russia. But, of course, this spread across the Western press in Britain and America. The gossip was appalling. You know, the talk that they were having a sexual relationship was utterly absurd. And when people ask me about it, I say, I'm just not going there because it's so ridiculous. But the trouble is all that scandal and gossip, and it was absolutely fetid based on the third, fourth hand gossip and rumor and innuendo. There was not a grain of truth in any of it. But of course, that, that kind of mud, if there's enough of it, sticks in the end. And it meant that 
what happened during the war years when Russia was an ally of Britain and France against Germany, um, Alexandra, because she was German, was accused of being a German spy. And the, the ramification of that was that she and Rasputin were both German spies and in the pay of Germany and plotting to bring down Russia. The most hideous calumny and uh, really libelous things were said about her. They were very cruel. They were hideous, actually. And it tainted. It tainted the attitude of many of the royal houses of Europe when it came to trying to get them out. I think that was uh, one of the problems was that none of the royals of Europe really liked Alexandra for various reasons. But unfortunately, some of them had bought into all that appalling gossip. Mm. That's powerfully, powerfully said. Thank you. Um, you describe Alexei's injury in early October 1912. Uh, well, Alexei over the years would go through long periods of sort of remission where he wouldn't have a bad episode of bleeding. And they would all hold their breath and think, oh, it's wonderful. He's, he's, he's doing really well. And it's really tragic because he'd had a bad episode in 1907. But between 1907 and 1912, he'd been doing quite well and hadn't had any really, really bad attacks. But then in 1912, in the autumn of 1912, the Romanovs went off to one of, on, on a trip to what was Poland, what is Poland now, but was then part of the Russian Empire, the, the, the big forest um, near Bialowicz. And they went to one of their big imperial hunting lodges there. And it was while they were staying there that Alexei, Alexei was always very <laughs> reluctant to do as he was told. And he constantly be told by his minders. And he had a couple of minders who were with him all the time not to jump and leap around and risk banging himself which he did one day getting into a boat he jumped into a boat and bashed his hip and it started bleeding in the joints and at the top of his thigh and he stabilized within a week or so and seemed to be better and the family moved on to their other hunting lodge a smaller much more modest one at Spoa in again in Poland in the Polish forest and he seemed, again, to be on the road to recovery then. But he was really getting very fed up with being told by his mother day in, day out, no, you can't do this. You can't go off on a bicycle. You can't ride a pony. You can't go off with the other children. You just had this terrible episode. You've got to get well. And he was constantly complaining and fed up with not being able to do anything. So in the end, Alexander took him out for a coach ride. Unfortunately, the road was very bumpy and rocky. And within a, a short distance, he started screaming in pain because it triggered a really bad bleed, a hematoma, where he'd just been recovering from injury, where he banged himself on the oar lock of the boat. So the next thing they know, he is temperature is rocketing. The bleeding into the joint is absolutely un uncontrollable. This is now October 1912. Um, the doctors can't do anything. I mean, all they could do when he had these hemophiliac bleeds was apply ice and pray, basically, and there wasn't a lot else they could do. And so he's lying there screaming in agony virtually day and night. Alexander's sitting by his bed, and it reached a crisis point on the, um, I think it was 
uh, about the tenth of um, about the tenth of October, and they thought he was going to die. They really thought it. You know, his temperature was up at two, nearly forty degrees. I think actually the priest came and read the last rites. And they even advised the Tsar to prepare an announcement to go into the press that evening, 10th of October, to forewarn, to set the scene that the Tsariyoch was about to die. And at that point, well, it, not immediately, actually, surprisingly, I thought it was immediate, but actually a, a couple of days later, um, in fact, as the temperature was dropping and he was beginning to get over the crisis, Alexander sent a telegram to Rasputin, who was in Siberia, a long, long way away, uh, asking his advice. And he didn't get it till around the 12th or 13th of October. Sent a message back, effectively saying, don't worry, all will be well. The little one will not die. Don't let the doctors fuss around him too much. And... Um, when she got that message, of course, she calmed down and became the stress sort of vanished from her face. She came down to dinner the first time in about two weeks and Alexei recovered. But as you can see from that, he, Rasputin was nowhere near. All he did was send a telegram. And in fact, the telegram saying that Alexei will recover and it all, all would be OK didn't, in fact, arrive till he passed the crisis anyway. So that, that, that whole kind of miraculous curing of Alexei by Rasputin has been ridiculously overhyped um, because he was nowhere near and he just sent a message. Mm. But we can imagine, as you just described, the effect that uh, the relief for Alexandra would have on the household. Absolutely. The relief on her, of course, transmitted itself first to the child but to everyone in the household. And so they all started believing, well, Rasputin says he's going to recover, so we'll believe it. And maybe there's a sort of power of positivity that was going on, but Alexei did recover. Let's jump forward in time a little bit. Um, of course, when the war begins, Nicholas is not immediately in command. But uh, after some major losses... And the front being pushed back, uh, Nicholas does assume command of the army and he leaves the family. He goes to Stavka, the, the headquarters, the army headquarters. And Alexandra and Olga and Tatiana, they undertake work at home as Sisters of Mercy. Mm. Would you describe their efforts, uh, what it meant to them to be a Sister of Mercy, uh, a nurse? But, but, but what was the significance of that to them? And and well, you know, kind of how the war was affecting the family through those experiences. Well, that's a bit of a big question, but let me try and simplify it down. The, the interesting thing about the war years was it gave Alexandra an incredible sense of purpose. And it also tapped into the hu strong humanitarian and nursing instincts that she had had passed down by her mother, Princess Alice, who had done a lot of humanitarian war work during the Franco-Prussian War and, you know, in Germany. So, and it, it, it was a family tradition from her, and of course, Princess Alice died after nursing her children through diphtheria when she contracted it herself. So that nursing instinct was very strong in Alexandra and it gave her a sense of purpose where she stopped thinking about herself 
or Alex A 24-7. She immediately threw herself, despite a lot of physical problems by then, the sciatica was awful. She threw herself into war work. She organized hospital trains. She organized uh, ladies of the court to, to, to set up collecting dressings and, you know, bringing, to, bringing together sewing garments for the wounded. Uh, she set up various hospitals in St. Petersburg. Well, it was then Petrograd in the war, in, in, in the capital city and out at Sarskoyosilo. And one of the major things she did, which gave her girls something to do as well, um, all pulling together for the war effort, was that she set up a hospital at Sarskoyosilo that the girls was the responsibility of the two elder girls, Olga and Tatiana, helped her at that, at, at that hospital. And then a smaller one was set up nearer to the palace where Maria and Anastasia did sort of hospital visiting, even with Alexei, he went along with them. And now Olga and Tatiana, because they were old enough, with their mother did a, a, a crash course, a Red Cross nurse course, and, and began working properly, you know, looking after the wounded, bandaging wounds. And very quickly, Tatiana proved incredibly talented and capable and was helping, assisting in operations and, and really dealing with some pretty grim war wounds and stuff. Olga, however, emotionally found it very hard dealing with the trauma of the wounded and was already a bit suffering from depression and withdrawal since you know, with the father being absent and various other things. I think she was just very, very sensitive and a bit of a melancholic. And she became rather withdrawn, couldn't cope with the hospital work and had to take more of a back seat. But Tatiana was brilliant. She was a wonderful nurse. I think had things been different, she could have gone on and been a doctor, if not a surgeon, if she'd not been a royal Grand Duchess, of course. But the younger children, too, did their bit. They visited the war wounded. They wrote letters home to their families for them. They played games of cards and board games with them. They talked to them. And when some of them died, they visited their graves and took flowers. Um, and really, the whole female side of the family threw themselves into doing something useful during the war. And they were very admirable in their efforts. So as you say, uh, Tatiana could have maybe been a, a doctor, a surgeon, if she was Absolutely. Wasn't. She had a natural gift for nursing, yes. Was that kind of, this isn't in my questions, this is just a question that comes to mind. Was that kind of, um, assuming a profession that way, was it completely barred to to the Grand Duchesses, to the... To the oh, no, as royal Grand Duchesses, they couldn't have done it. But they weren't the only Grand Duchesses to do war work. Nicholas's sister, Olga, also did a lot of exemplary war work, uh, worked on the hospital trains. Other Grand Duchesses across the Romanov family and relatives did, did their bit. They all really involved themselves. Alexandra did far more during the war than people are aware of, mainly because it's not really been written about. A friend of mine in America has been doing a study of um, Alexander's war work for some time, and I know he wants to hopefully publish all his research. But she did a huge amount, visiting hospitals, visiting hospital trains, 
She took the children along with her. They did their bit for the war. Throughout the war, the girls all dressed incredibly modestly. From day one, Alexandra said, right, that's it. No new clothes, no fancy outfits. We will be dressing modestly and enduring, you know, uh, uh, such privations as Romanos endure. I mean, not many, but, you know, nevertheless, they, you, you see the photographs of them in the war. You never see them dressed up in fancy clothes. You see them in cardigans and woolly hats and plain blouses, dressed very modestly. And where they had hand-me-downs, they patched their clothes. You know, they, they, they did not, they did their bit for the war effort. They really did. There were no, there were no Fabergé nursing jewels. No. Well, there were, there were one or two, the, even the Fabergé eggs stopped during the war years because Nicholas and Alexandra considered it inappropriate. But the, I think they did have one made with a Red Cross on, uh, a Red Cross wartime Fabergé egg. But as such, all the bling stopped, all the glamour, uh, none of that. They, they, they actually really did throw their weight behind um, their nursing efforts. Mm. Part of the mythologizing around uh, especially Alexandra and Rasputin, is that uh, during the war, Alexandra assumed more administrative control of the state because Nicholas was off at Stavka. Um, and in your own writing, the way that you put it is that she rapidly began overreaching herself by directly influencing the sacking and appointment of key ministers. Can you say a little bit more about, about that part of what she was doing during the war? Well, Nicholas was a long way away at Army HQ, and she was always very opinionated about who, um, about what kind of ministers Nicholas should appoint. Basically, uh, throughout Nicholas's reign, the only good ministers either got murdered or gave up. I mean, Stolypian was a case in point. He was assassinated. Um, generally, a lot of toadies and yes-men were appointed during Nicholas's reign, who were often incompetent and weak and ineffectual. Um, but Alexandra was the one who wanted to have a retinue of yes-men who did, as she felt, you know, things should be done. And she constantly harangued Nicholas in her long lecturing letters to him at the at the front, pressing him into sacking this minister. Oh, I don't like that minister. Um, you know, you should get rid of so and so. And it was normally because they wouldn't toe the line, and you know, they tried to bring in a some change or do something inventive or, or uh, you know, use their use their common sense in ways that she didn't like. I mean, you know, acts. If anyone tried to act remotely inventively, she didn't like it. So. Basically, in, in about 16 months of the war that Nicholas was away, four prime ministers came and went, five ministers of the interior, and three ministers of war. Mainly to do with Alexandra saying, sack him, I don't like him, and point someone else. Also, of course, though I'm not convinced the extent to which Rasputin had influence, but he too would put his pennyworth in and say, I, you should get rid of so-and-so. And this is where a lot of the rumour and gossip came about saying that they, you know, they were running the show and, and making bad decisions in Nicholas's absence. But ultimately, the buck stopped with him. He shouldn't have allowed her to manipulate him into making bad decisions about 
government ministers, which unfortunately he did, but then he was doing it from a distance and people weren't telling them, him the truth about what the situation was like in Petrograd. If they, if they had, if they told him how precipitous everything was in February, after the February revolution in 1917, he would have come straight back and taken control and the second October revolution might never have happened. Can you describe... Maybe, maybe in brief, I don't know, whatever extent you'd like, the events that did eventually lead to Nicholas's abdication. Nicholas, I feel, was duped into abdicating. There he is, uh, hundreds of miles away from home, when two members of the government, the Duma, came out by train and persuaded him that that you know revolution had broken in Petrograd. There was disarray in the army. People, the, the the conscript army, lots of them were deserting at the front. Morale was low, and it was you know there was so much disaffection with the Tsar and the, the old imperial regime that the best thing he could do to save Russia and the country and the war effort was to give up the job, i.e. abdicate. And because Nicholas loved his country so passionately, he allowed himself to be persuaded, I think, that his abdication would save Russia. And it would also save the war effort, because obviously with the revolution, everyone was worried that Russia was now going to pull out of the war effort as well on the Eastern Front. So Nicholas abdicated thinking that he, by his him removing himself as the hated czar, um, the situation could be saved. Maybe there, I mean, the, the original hope, I think, was amongst the provisional government in, 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 in back in, in Petrograd, but that there could possibly be a regency for Alexei to eventually become czar. But of course, what Nicholas did when he abdicated was knowing full well his child was a hemophiliac whose life expectancy was pretty poor. He abdicated on behalf of his son as well, because if he had just abdicated for himself, uh, he and Alexandra would have been obliged to go into exile, leaving Alexei under a regency in Russia. And there is no way on God's earth they would want to be separated from him, from their boy, that they wouldn't do that. So he abdicated on behalf of Alexei, also because he'd had private talks with the doctors and they had effectively told him that Alexei would be lucky to see the age of 16. So Nicholas later realised, I think, in captivity in the last months of his life that he'd been tricked into abdicating, that it had not achieved anything the Bolsheviks had taken over. Russia pulled out of the war with Germany in March 1918, and things were even worse from Russia, for Russia. He hadn't saved Russia by abdicating. Uh, and, of course, uh, the sellout to the Germans by the Bolsheviks broke his heart. Mm. So the whole thing was really tragic when you think about it. Um, so, you know, at the beginning of our conversation, you you, you talked a little bit about how you got started writing about the Romanovs and, and you wrote a, a detailed account of their last days. Uh, it's rich with detail and, and emotion. Um, it includes the horrible events of their death. Um, would you describe their outlook, Nicholas, Alexandra, maybe the, the girls, during the time that they were held captive? What do we know about what they were thinking at the time? 
The problem with knowing what the Romanovs were thinking at the very end when they're in Katrinburg in the Apartheid House is that the Bolsheviks stopped them receiving and sending letters. Um, so we only know up to a certain point, I think, in June. And after that, really, we don't know what was going on in their heads. We have to kind of piece things together from what we know from eyewitnesses and other people who left accounts. But it's pretty clear that, to me, in those final weeks of their captivity, firstly, as I've already said, Alexandra just retreated more and more into religiosity. Every day the girls, one or other girl would have, when they had their brief exercise periods, morning and afternoon, one of the girls always had to stay with mother indoors. She rarely went outside because she was so sickly or indisposed and read the gospels to her or read the Bible or some pious work. The last few letters she wrote were very laden with religious references and, and a very profound sense, I think, of reconciliation, acceptance, fatalism. Both she and Nicholas were deeply, deeply fatalistic. And you get the same thing with Nicholas's last few letters. And then his sense of utter despair, the last um, journal entry he wrote was about, I think it was the 11th of July about six days before they were murdered, where he, he just, you could sense him giving up. He said, we've had absolutely no news from outside. The sense of despair because they didn't know what was going on in Russia, how their relatives were, what was happening in the rest of the world. The sense of abandonment, I think, was pretty profound in Nicholas. And I think he was obviously deeply religiously resigned to his fate as well. The girls, it's difficult to gauge because they were young and um, perhaps uh, the younger two, I don't think were totally aware, Anastasia and uh, Maria. Also, they, they were a bit too friendly with the guards and got into trouble for, for chatting to the guards, but they were bored. They were teenagers locked up for hours and hours and hours every day, you know, with a sick menopausal mother, a very sick brother. Um, so inevitably they're going to get bored and, and, and talk to the guards. Olga was very, very much in retreat by the end, very depressive, very depressed, very thin, sick. I think because she, of all the girls, sensed that this was the end. Uh, she had also become very, very almost traumatized by the hatred for her parents, particularly her father. She was deeply upset that the people had turned against her father, a man she adored and loved and who'd been a very wonderful hands-on parent. So Tatiana, well, Tatiana carried on putting on a brave face and getting things done and not keeping an eye on their mother so we can only guess, really, at what was going on in their minds in those last few days. But I think certainly Nicholas would have expected that his, his head would be on the block eventually because it had been said to him that, you know, he was going to be taken back to Moscow and put on trial. And, uh, you know, the inevitable result of that would have been an execution. And of course, they're they are killed, and 
in a horrible manner that you describe uh, in your in your book. But there were aspects of their death that led to an array of enduring myths, especially the hopeful legends about the survival of Anastasia. Um, when how did you go about sifting truth from rumor and stories when you were doing that research? Um, not difficult for me because I think it's such a nonsense, all these claims of miraculous survival, and it always has been. And uh, once the Soviet Union collapsed and some of the documentary evidence relating to the murders came out of the archives, it's, it's absolutely apparent to me from everything that I was able to glean and read and check out that there is no way anyone in that family could have escaped the bloodbath that was that took place on the night of the 16th, 17th, July, 1918. Um, it's wishful thinking. I think part of it is the idea that uh, it's so horrendous having to come to terms with the fact that five innocent children were murdered in such a brutal and savage way. And because of that, people want to hope somehow that someone got away, that someone survived. And the real problem with these endless Anastasia rumours and all the uh, numerous, uh, numberless uh, claimants, there have been several Anastasias. In fact, there have been claimants to, for every member of the family. The reason primarily that these rumours carried on was because the Bolsheviks initially for many, many years only uh, acknowledged that they killed the Tsar. And then people pretty much accepted that Alexei would have been killed too as the heir to the throne. So the two males were killed. But for many, many years, the Bolsheviks happily led, allowed uh, people in the West to, to 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 disseminate and circulate these stories that maybe someone got away. Maybe the woman who turned up in Berlin in 1920 trying to drown herself in the canal really was Anastasia. And it's because the Bolsheviks didn't categorically deny um, that they'd murdered the children, that the, the, this, this rumour was able to carry on for so long. And because there were so many surprising number of aristocrats, not really many Romanovs, but certainly a few aristocrats in Europe in the 20s and 30s who were actually ready to believe this woman. Um, but I, I, even now, I mean, not now, it's kind of drifted off, but right up until the anniversary in 2018, even then I still occasionally got emails from people saying, well, of course, you know, Anastasia got away or even the whole family got away and they all went to live in different parts of Europe and lived happily ever after into their old age. But they're, they're having, having studied all the evidence, I, there's no way anyone could have escaped that, that massacre. Mm. Mm. Sobering, and but. also that, so the other thing you have to recall is not only getting out of the house and escaping being murdered but somehow getting from Siberia in the middle of a Russian civil war which was then raging all the way from Siberia out to Western Europe through Bolshevik controlled territory I and mean, it's just it just it's just not credible just not credible mm. thank you so kind of to sew it all up with two 
big picture questions, kind of thinking about what do we hope that listeners will take away. Do you think that the fall of Imperial Russia was inevitable in some way beyond the personal act, pardon, beyond the personal actions uh, and limitations of the Romanovs, of, of Nicholas, of Alexandra, and the way that they governed? That's a tricky one, really. I'm not totally convinced that it was inevitable. If I think the big crucial turning point could have been 1905 after, you know, the fiasco of the Russo-Japanese War, terrible disaster for Russia uh, politically. Um, after that, and then the bloody Sunday protest march where innocent um, working workers marched without weapons or anything uh, on and asking for reform and for better working conditions when they were attacked and and, and and by Cossack troops. When that happened, that turning point, that was the point where Nicholas should have introduced major political concessions. If it introduced decent democratic constitutional government, if he'd allowed the Duma, the state Duma to flourish instead of constantly censoring it and shutting it down, then I don't see why Russia could not have evolved into the kind of constitutional monarchy that was made such a success by King Edward VII in the years leading up to World War I, because Russia was beginning to grow economically, beginning to catch up um, with Western Europe in those terms, and it could have flourished differently under a much more benign and democratic constitutional monarch. But the fact is, Nicholas was terrified of change. He was terrified of letting go of the tight controls of Tsarist autocracy. So it could have been different. But then even up to 1917, when the revolution broke in February, if Nicholas had not been away at Army HQ, if he'd been in Petrograd, he would have clamped down on the revolutionaries much more firmly and might have diffused revolution then. Because the Bolsheviks effectively in October 1970 just walked in, because um, not because they were strong, but because the provisional government was so weak and so disorganized. So there are several moments at which revolution wasn't necessarily inevitable. Mm. Mm. Brilliant. Um, this final question, I mean, you've already kind of addressed it in what you've said. It's, you know, kind of to what extent were Nicholas or Alexandra or Rasputin directly responsible for the end of Tsarist rule? But I feel like you've answered that with your last, with your last answer. Do you have anything else you would want to say on that point or? Well, the, the, the real folly, I think, I think actually, I mean, I don't like to pin things onto one thing and make a dramatic statement, but I do feel, of course, the thing that so much hinges on is if Alexei had not been born a haemophiliac, um, they wouldn't have been clutched at all these quacks and charlatans. And I'm not saying Rasputin was a charlatan. I don't think he was. I think he had genuine faith healing powers of some kind. But if they had not attached themselves to Rasputin to keep Alexei alive in their eyes, because 
uh, things could have been different because Alex, uh, um, because Rasputin bought all that bad press and scandal on the monarchy through his association with them. So I think the sheer fact of Alexei being born a haemophiliac, history could have been quite different if he'd been born a normal, healthy child. But alternatively, you could also say if Alexandra hadn't been a German, because there was so much hostility towards her. If Nicholas had married a Russian wife, things could maybe have been different. I don't know. That's it for this week's episode of Unobscured. Stick around after this short sponsor break. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up! And call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. One last note before we wrap things up here at Unobscured. It has been a joy to bring you these deep dives over the past four years. And I hope you can tell just how proud the entire team is at what we've created. But we're not done. Along with all the other amazing podcasts that we make over at Grim and Mild, we're adding a new one that you're going to love. Grim and Mild Presents will be an ongoing deep dive show that tackles seasonal topics, two seasons each year. Think of it like Unobscured, but on the same release schedule as Lore or Noble Blood. Every other week, I'll bring you a new chapter of our exploration of all things weird, unusual, and fascinating. Grim and Mild Presents kicks off on Friday, January 7th with a 13-episode series all about the American Sideshow. And you're going to love it. Learn more and subscribe over at GrimAndMild.com presents. Unobscured was created by me, Aaron Mankey, and produced by Matt Frederick, Alex Williams, and Josh Thane, in partnership with iHeartRadio, with research by Sam Alberti, writing by Carl Nellis, and original music by Chad Lawson. Learn more about our contributing historians, source materials, and links to our other shows over at grimandmild.com unobscured. And as always, thanks for listening.
Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit RightRug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.